All right. We're beginning, uh, I know last week we kind of did the intro for it. We're beginning a series this week um, in the book of Acts where we're going to be walking through verse by verse uh, the book of Acts uh, for the foreseeable future. And so uh, we don't know how long we're going to be in it, but we're just going to follow the Lord through it and follow the Holy Spirit's promptings on um, what He wants to focus our attention on as a church, as we see in the book of Acts, the first church being planted, the first church growing and expanding, and seeing all that the Holy Spirit and that Jesus and that the Father were doing within that church, um, because I think that that is so pertinent to our life, our church, um, both individually and corporately, and sp- especially for this community in Indianapolis. And so, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1. Um, That is where we're going to be today. We're going to look at the first 14 verses um, in Acts chapter 1. And I know I covered um, just a little bit the first eight verses last week. But again, we're going to go uh, a little bit deeper into it today as we look at this passage. And so Acts chapter 1, what I want to do is I want to read um, Acts 1, 1 through 14. And then uh, from there we will dive into the instruction. So Acts 1, 1 through 14 says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and mother and the mother of and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Father, thank you so much for just the reading of your word, God. As we dive into your word, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would guide us in the truth, that He would bring um, to our hearts and to our minds an illumination of your gospel truth, your absolute truth, that you want to change and transform our hearts and our minds, that you want us to be able to see Jesus as our greatest treasure, to see his word as our greatest authority, and to have that have 
lordship over our lives, directing us, guiding us, uh, creating a design in which we live out our lives for your glory and for our joy. And so, Father, would you do that for us in this time? Um, Spirit, would you move in our hearts and minds? And Jesus, would you be magnified as we discuss you and what it is that you have accomplished in this first church? We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So you have right at the beginning of this book, um, really the mission of this entire book. And, and that's what we kind of focused on last week was the specific mission being verse 8, the idea that there is going to be power that's going to fall on the disciples, the apostles, the people of God, those who are following, trusting, believing in Jesus for who he is, um, for what he's done and for who he says he is. And then not only that, but they're going to receive power to then become witnesses of him. And in becoming witnesses, there's going to be kind of a a plan established where it's going to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so what we see in this first 14 verses is really the power that's at play, the purpose that's stated, the plan that's given, and then the people that are involved. And so for those of you with a Baptist background who like um, alliteration, that's what I'm rolling with today is four points, four Ps. It's easy for you to follow along with that. And so power, purpose, plan, and people um, is really what we're looking at and the establishing of this first church plant um, that is here in Jerusalem. And so we're going to start off with the first one, which is the power. Anybody know what the power is? that's involved here. Just throw it out. Holy Spirit. Good. A plus for you guys. You're fired. I'm just kidding. Um, So the power is the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to do it on any of the other points, right? Um, The Holy Spirit for us is, is an interesting topic of of dialogue because depending on your background, you either love the Holy Spirit or you're scared to death of the Holy Spirit. Um, I know with me having a Baptist background, there's there's a lot of times where we we love Father, we love Jesus, we love uh, the Holy Bible, but necessarily the Holy Spirit's kind of this weird cat that we're like, we want you to show up, but don't show up too crazy. Like we we want you to be a part of this thing, but don't make us do things that's going to cause us to be uncomfortable. Um, And so this is just a reality that happens within a lot of churches is uh, when we talk about Holy Spirit, um, we we get uncomfortable with it because the Holy Spirit um, is, is in a lot of ways, people think, is a loose cannon. Like he's, he's going to make you speak in, in different languages that you're not used to speaking in. He's going to make you jump six pews that you're not used to jumping. Um, he's going to make you do things that you're like, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not ready for this. And so what I want to talk about today is specifically some of the things that we see throughout Scripture um, that the Holy Spirit's role is is in the church. And so really two things is we need to talk about first the Holy Spirit and his relationship with you. And then we also need to talk about what it means when the Holy Spirit comes upon a people or as Luke um, chapter 24 would talk about where the Holy Spirit, you're clothed in the Spirit of Christ. Um, And so Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this illustration. I, I think this is one of the best illustrations that I've seen on the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, but Lloyd-Jones talked about the Christian having a happiness in the Lord that is there because of the Holy Spirit dwelling with inside of him. 
There's a happiness in the Lord. There's a gladness in the Lord. There's a delight that we have in the Lord because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit has a specific role in which, and as we're going to see this, that he points us to Jesus. He wants to make much of Jesus. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He wants, us, he wants to draw attention to Jesus and the Father. He wants to point us to them. A lot of times I like to think of the Holy Spirit as kind of like the operations guy on staff who's behind scenes, whose primary job is to make the other staff look good. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's role is to operate with inside of us, kind of a behind-the-scenes role in which what's, what's delighted in it, what comes out of us is ultimately making Jesus look good and making the Father's plans highlighted and look really, really good. But there will also be times, Lloyd-Jones' um, illustration says that the Christian life oftentimes is like a child walking hand-in-hand with his father just day in, day out, just walking down the road. There's security there. There's safety there. There's um, stability there. There's the comfort of knowing that my hand is held by the Father. And just like that song, there's nothing that can pluck me from his hand. There's nothing that's going to allow that hand to be broken away from. And so there's this gladness of delight in knowing that the Father is walking with me hand in hand. And the Holy Spirit is driving all of that for us. But Lloyd-Jones' illustration goes on to say that there's moments where as we're walking day in, day out, mundane life, there's moments where the, the Father then picks us up and puts us in front of him and says, look at you, look how much I love you. And he brings us in, he kisses our neck, kisses our forehead. He might twirl us around and throw us up. Now, not throw us up, but like, you know, throw us in the air. I'm not talking lukewarm here, but anyways, he'll, he, he delights in us. And then he'll put us back down and continue walking with us hand in hand. So there's moments in life where the Father will startle us. And that's what the language used as being clothed in the Spirit or, or having the, the Spirit fall upon us in moments that are greater degrees of experiencing the Spirit of God that we don't necessarily experience every single day. And, so, and it's not to say that that's right or wrong. I think there's a lot of times that we... We want, we plead for, we, we hope to have those moments every day where the Father picks us up and twirls us around. But the reality is, is we can't operate in that place at all times. John Piper goes on to say that if we were to, to look for those moments and to live out those moments every single day, he kind of looks at it as like a breaker. Like our fuses, as, as the way we design, will just bust. They'll break. And not only that, as they break and bust, we actually start to fall into idolatry of thinking that we need these mountaintop moments at all times. That we're actually looking for those rather than the stability of a daily walk with Christ, a daily walk with the Father that the Holy Spirit is providing for us. And so again, he literally, his quote says, the fuses of love are so overloaded that they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time, but that pop up every now and then are gone and in their places utter an indestructible assurance so that you know that you know that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk on down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, my father loves me. 
My father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father. What a father. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's like to be clothed in power from on high by the Spirit of God, a driving out of any doubt that you have that he's there or that he's not there, a driving out of any doubt that you have that he's not working within your life on a day-in, day-out basis is these moments where the Spirit comes in and he startles us to draw us back to what's ultimately happening at all times within our hearts and within our minds. I love the honesty of Lloyd-Jones there. Um, He acknowledges that even when we're not conscious of our doubts, maybe there's times where we're operating out of a subconscious doubt, we're operating out of a lack of trust for the Lord, that we know that we can rely and believe that the Holy Spirit is still working within us to draw us back, to draw us in, to allow us to see these moments where we're walking hand in hand with the Father day in and day out, obedience to His commands, to be safe and secure in the Father's love. Um, What a gift that is because most people don't have the gift. They don't have that ability to walk day in day, hand in hand with the Father in a stability, a security, a stableness that, that the world does not have to offer. And so, again, For some of us in this room, if you've never felt those moments where the Father picks you up and twirls you around, it's not to say that you're not saved. It's not what that means at all. Because I would argue, and I would show you in the text, um, numerous passages of Scripture where the idea of having us being startled and twirled around at all times as if thinking that's what true Christian life is meant to be at all times I'll show you how that does not sustain the Christian life. Case in point, how can you go through the parted Red Sea, walking on dry ground, seeing this incredible miracle happen in front of you, and then within a month, you're taking all of your gold and you're literally... Um, burning it and boiling it down and making a, uh, a golden calf that you're going to worship in idolatry after you just had a complete wild orgy. Like that's what happened with the Israelites a month after they walked through the parted Red Sea. And so what that is to tell us is we're not going to be sustained through the Christian life by looking for Holy Spirit miracles every single day. We're not going to be sustained through those things. Rather, by looking for those things at all times, we'll actually fall into idolatry like the Israelites did and try to create our own sort of um, startling moments in order to keep our energy at a certain level. And God just says, that's not the way I designed it to work and function. I want you to walk hand in hand with me day to day in the mundane. Right now, there's, there's a plethora of books that are being written on just this idea of, of experiencing extraordinary grace in an ordinary life. Like, it's not belittling the fact that we have an ordinary life. What it's saying is that God is doing 10,000 things in your mind and in your heart every single day in the mundane, ordinary life. I love what Zach S. Wine, he was at a conference that Kelsey and I went to this last year, um, says is just your, the majority of your life is going to experience everyday momentary um, or everyday, oh, what, what was it? Uh, 
anyway, it's, it's basically everyday ordinary moments of grace is what you're going to experience. Everyday ordinary moments of grace that you're experiencing from an extraordinary father who is intervening within our day-to-day. So that's the first part of the Holy Spirit's role. This idea of power falling upon the people. That word power in the Greek is dunamis, which is where we get the term dynamite from. This power that falls on them, and and I wanted to talk about the miracles first because a lot of times when people think dynamite, they're thinking extraordinary moments, extraordinary events, extraordinary things that are going to happen. And so I wanted to be able to talk about the mundane and the ordinary because what the Holy Spirit is providing for us as a dunamis, as a dynamite power for us is to be able to engage life in the ordinary but engage life in the opposition. So it's not necessarily just about us having these mountaintop experiences, but rather it's getting strength for us when we actually start to walk through life where there's actually more opposition, there's more suffering, there's more strain, there's more pressure, there's more stress that's going to come upon us because of the fact that we're following Christ, because of the fact that we're believing a gospel that runs contrary to society, runs contrary to culture, runs contrary to the beliefs of the world around us. And so this dunamis is is allowing us to be elevated back to a kind of a homeopathic stasis in which we can live life with strength coming from the Father, strength coming from Christ, strength coming from the Holy Spirit in such a way that we're able to rest amidst greater chaos that's actually going to come upon us because we are Christians. Like I used to say, and I used to teach wrongly in this, when I was a youth pastor and in the first years of teaching, primarily when I was 20 to 23 years old, I used to always tell kids, man, come to Christ, life's going to be amazing. Come to Christ's life. It's going to be the greatest thing that you're ever going to be able to experience. And even though that's true, what I've come to find is that the suffering and the tribulations and the trials, they only increased after I came to follow Christ rather than them being alleviated because well, Christ is just going to take care of everything for me. God's just going to take care of everything for me. So now life's going to be easy. Life's going to be fun. It's not true. It's not true. So his power comes upon us to sustain us through what's going to be a lot of opposition because we see Christ as our greatest treasure. We want to get that greatest treasure to those who don't experience it. And as I often talk about, the gospel is bittersweet. The gospel does one thing first, and that's reveal the fact that you need a Savior. Well, when you, you you don't think about the fact that you need a Savior unless you realize that there's something wrong with you. And in order to realize there's something wrong with you, someone has to tell you there's something wrong with you. So when you first hear the gospel and and the Spirit's illuminating it within you, what first happens is, oh, I want to fight. I want to go against this. This is telling me, it's revealing all the imperfections in me. It's revealing all the junk in me. It's revealing all the brokenness in me. So why would I want to be a part of something that's going to reveal all of that in me? So I want to provide opposition. 
I want to be like Saul did with the first church in the first nine, ten chapters that we're going to see here in Acts where he is persecuting the church, grabbing men and women and children, dragging them out of the houses and putting them in prison and stoning them. I mean, this guy, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, started out as a guy who would hold the coats of other guys while they're stoning the church. Why? Because the church was calling out his sin, calling out his hypocrisy, calling out his trust in a religion that was not going to provide hope for him. And he's saying, no, 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 you're trying to rob me of everything that I see as providing hope and stability and structure for me. And so the world's going to yell at you for that. The world's going to persecute you. The world's going to get in arguments with you. And if you do not have Christ in you, what that's going to do is that's going to draw you down into depression. That's going to draw you down into fear and anxiety. And what the Holy Spirit does with his dunamis, with his power, is he comes in and he lifts you up. He exalts you. He brings you back to homeostasis to be able to say, you know what? What they're trying to bring me down in by arguing and debating and persecuting and this and that, I'm able to walk with strength because the Holy Spirit is providing that power for me. That's what he's doing. And I, I would much rather have that every single day as I walk through life than having the startling moments where I'm just picked up by the Father and twirled. Don't, I want those moments. I pray for those moments. I plead for those moments every day. But I would rather have is the Holy Spirit daily providing a power for me amidst the trials and tribulations and the suffering that we walk in as believers that the Bible promises us that we're going to walk in. I think the other reason that we need to talk about the Holy Spirit being the one who drives the powers because as us as Christians, for whatever reason, we think we have the ability to um, I'll just put it this way. You're not Aladdin. Like we don't have the ability to control the Holy Spirit by rubbing a lamp and then saying, do this or do that. Grant my wishes, grant my miracles, grant my you know, uh, debt to be released, like grant my health, wealth, and prosperity, grant these things. Like we don't have that power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a specific plan and a will that he is executing that comes from the Father in Christ. And what we are to do is align ourselves, Lord willing, your will be done, not my will be done, your will be done. You have a plan, you have a purpose, you have, you have strength that you are providing, power that you are providing, and Lord, I want to walk in whatever it is that you want to operate and do in my life. So it's not us trying to play prayer as if it's Aladdin with a lamp and a genie and just trying to figure out a best way to make our life better. But rather, we're, when, when that genie comes out, we're submitting to him. We're laying down in front of him and saying, hey, you know exactly what you need to accomplish for your glory and for my joy. And so I submit to that. I surrender to that. You, are, you have authority over me. And that's the place that I want to live. That then rolls into what he calls us to do in his power is to be witnesses. The purpose that we have is to be witnesses. How are we witnesses by the Holy Spirit's power? How are we witnesses in the day-to-day hand-holding of the Father as well as having those seasons and moments when we're clothed in power from on high? 1 Corinthians 12.3 talks about how the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus as Lord. 
1 Corinthians 12, 3 says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This text isn't talking about your lips being able to just utter Jesus is Lord. The demons are able to utter, utter Jesus is Lord. Some of the most um, horrific people that ever existed can utter with their lips, Jesus is Lord. Hitler himself said Jesus was a good Nazi because of his hatred of Jews. So, even, so Hitler thought he was on the same team as Jesus. So this idea of just saying Jesus is Lord with our lips is not what this verse is talking about. What it means to be witnesses is that the Holy Spirit is leading us to confess Jesus as Lord, not with just our lips, but with our lives. And what he means by that is there's a way in which we are going to live because Jesus is Lord. So there are things that I do because Jesus is Lord, and there are things that I don't do because Jesus is Lord. There are things that I eat and drink because Jesus is Lord, and there are things that I don't eat and drink because Jesus is Lord. There are things that I dream about and fantasize about because Jesus is Lord, and there are things that I don't dream about and fantasize because Jesus is Lord. There is a specific design in which we are to live our lives because Jesus is Lord, that the Holy Spirit guides us in, that creates our lives to be a witness that testify of why Jesus is the greatest treasure to ever exist. Why Jesus is the greatest Savior to ever exist. Why Jesus is the greatest hope that we have. So I'm going to spend my money in a way that is testifying Jesus is Lord. I'm going to love my wife and children in a way, hopefully Lord willing, that will testify that Jesus is Lord. And that we're going to speak our, our, our words to people. We're going to edify, we're going to encourage in a way that testifies Jesus is Lord. And so the purpose that he provides us with that is being fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit is that we're going to live lives in which we are witnesses so there's a design here. There's a design in which we are to grow in the understanding. If you're like, well, I don't know what this design looks like, just look at Jesus in the Gospels and see exactly how he talked to people, see who he pursued, see how he ate and drank, see who he was hanging out with, see what Jesus did in living his life, and then that is how we are to be transformed into in order for our lives to be a testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. The second thing we see in regard to being witnesses is that the Holy Spirit gifts us to do ministry just like Jesus. John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, I want to say something about this verse because I've seen it butchered in the past. Is this text saying that because Jesus has ascended and sent us the Holy Spirit, that you're going to be able to take your lunch at work and bless it and feed 5,000 co-workers with your lunchbox? Maybe. I'm not saying you should pray for that if the opportunity comes available. Does this verse say that we should walk into a funeral and say, nope, nope, She's not dead. Get up. You're alive again. I wouldn't recommend that. But maybe that's a possibility. 
the verse here is not talking about looking at specifically the things that Jesus did and then we just go and do them in, in His authority, in His name. You're going to get in trouble by doing that at times. Just look at the, the, the Jewish itinerant exorcists in Acts, and we'll get to them in a minute, uh, in, a minute in, in a few weeks, uh, where they, they're looking around, they're seeing Paul, they're seeing the apostles, they're seeing them do these incredible ministries of miracles, of casting out demons, and they're like, yeah, I think we can do that. And so they just go up to this demon, and they're like, hey, uh, in the name of Jesus, come out. And that demon looks at them and says, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard of, um, but who are you? And then they beat the mess out of them to the point that they beat the clothes off of them and they run away naked. Like, if you get the clothes beaten off of you, I think you lost the fight. <laughs> and so, like, I'm not, I, I'm not recommending that we just walk around looking at the miracles that Jesus performed and just trying them out. But I do think we need to pray for those opportunities. Trusting, Lord willing, that we want to do what it is that you ultimately want to do, not just the fact that I want to try to feed 5,000 people with Subway. Here's what's happening in this text. The Bible is saying that the ministry of Jesus that was so confounding to the world around him will be our ministry, especially as we engage the least of these. Jesus engaged the least of these. Jesus looked for the opportunities where he was going to be able to maximize his grace and then poured it out to the people. So if there were 5,000 people who were hungry and he's looking around and there's not a subway close to them anywhere in, in existence, he's saying, what, what, what do we have? And the, and the disciples look around, well, we didn't go shopping. And they find a boy who's got some lunch and Jesus says, I'm going to be big here. And he provides a practical need of helpfulness for them. There's other times where, where Jesus operates in this way where he's looking around at a practical need of helpfulness and he answers that need in order to make himself look big and the disciples do it as well in order to make Jesus look big. And so the way that that looks like for us as witnesses, as, as uh, doing the work of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus is just looking around in our circles of life and saying, how can I engage those around me and provide for them a service that is a practical need that they have? For example, we attempted this. We didn't do a great job at it. I think we made it worse than it was before. But it snowed several weeks ago. And I was like, you know what? Hey, let's just, a practical need of help is going and shoveling driveways off. Now, you don't want to take a guy from southern Florida and a guy from Tennessee and think, let's go shovel driveways. This would be great. Um, what we realized was, was that there was actually a layer of ice underneath it and then snow packed on top of it. And so all we did was remove the snow and it was just ice. And so it was, just, it was slipperier than it was when it started out. But at least one person came out and was like, hey, it's the thought that counts. And so we're like, thank you. Jesus is great. Um, <laughs> But you look for practical ways to be able to serve the people around you. That's what it means to be witnesses for Jesus. This leads into the plan. For us as a church, our plan to see Jesus be made much of is not just Indianapolis. It's not just the neighborhoods of Nora and Castleton. Their plan was Jerusalem, 
and we're going to look at Jerusalem for the next 12 chapters. We're going to be experts on the Church of Jerusalem, the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. We're going to be experts on them because literally the first 12 chapters, all you're going to hear is in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And then it begins to, 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 for varying reasons that weren't around a conference room where they were like, hey, you know what would be a great idea? Let's, let's do what we've done in Jerusalem. Let's just go to Judea. No, the reason why they ended up going to Judea and Samaria was because they were being persecuted and scattered. As they were being persecuted and scattered, all they knew what to do was to continue doing what they were doing. So the plan kept expanding out and, and going. And what Paul ultimately ends up saying is we're going to take this thing not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And when you hear end of the earth, that's us, that's you, that's me. And as we walked through that timeline last week, if you missed it, I'm sorry, I don't have time to go through it again. But we walked through a, time, a timeline from AD 30 at Jesus' crucifixion all the way to the district church being planted. And we looked at the gospel expanding and spreading so that we saw Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth being fulfilled. But then we asked the question, okay, now that it's reached the end of the earth, does that mean it's over? No, not at all. We talked about the fact that we, have, we are a vapor, a mist. Our lives are referred to like that in the Bible, in Proverbs. And it says because of that, we are to maximize the amount of time that we have here for the sake of the gospel and expanding it and getting it out and advancing it. And so we have a, we, as you walk through the membership process with the district church, you'll see that, that our vision for the church is not just for the gospel to reach Nora and Castleton, the areas here on the northeast side of Indy, but it's to reach Indianapolis, it's to reach the Midwest, the nation, and ultimately the ends of the earth. There's a, there's a movement going on right now in China that you can also trace from the original gospel here in AD 30 where as the gospel spread to Asia and ultimately got to China, well, China, if you're not familiar with this, but Christianity is illegal there. It's outlawed there. So it's an underground church. They have to speak in code when it comes to uh, where they're going to meet. And so if you, if you think it's hard to find the district church here in this theater, talk about having to send out an email saying it, it, in code, hey, we're going to be meeting on top of the rock. And you got to figure out where the rock is. <laughs> like it, like it's, it's, or we're going to be meeting in the basement of third north longitude blah 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 like that's where like they have to reach it out into code in order for them to create a gathering and a church to be able to come together well the gospel has so exploded in china at this point that there's estimated to be more than a million believers in china that are worshiping in secret and not only that but because of the traced gospel movement going to china there is a mission right now where they are tithing a hundred thousand people and the the mission that they're ultimately accomplishing is what they're calling back to jerusalem and so they're now going from china tithing a thousand or a hundred thousand missionaries that are now making their way back west all the way to the middle east in order to get the gospel back to its original place because if you were to go over the middle east right now you're going to see a lot of turmoil the gospel, even though it, we know that it is thriving, doesn't look on the outside to be thriving in the Middle East. But this is an underground movement that's happening. Just because Jerusalem's been covered in the first chapters doesn't mean that it doesn't still need to be covered. 
And so that's the idea of this plan is that regardless, we cannot create an inclusive gospel in which, yeah, we've got 30 adults, we've got 12 kids, so let's just, let's just, plan, like, let's just focus on those people. No, it is a both and at all times. There has to be in-reach and there has to be outreach. I like to think of that, the two back pedals, one in-reach, one outreach. We, we've got to disciple, we've got to engage, we've got to shepherd, we've got to soul care one another, we've got to pour into one another, we've got to do the 59 one another's that are in the New Testament. We've got to do that as a church, but at the same time, we have to just as much be focused on engaging the least of these that are outside of our walls of the church because that's what the gospel has called us to do. That's what we see the mission of the church doing. And that's what I love. I hate to put you guys on the spot, but our brothers and sisters here from uh, southern Texas, deep south Texas, are here because they have a heart to see the gospel expand. The gospel will reach the ends of the earth. And that brings us to the last point, which is the people. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 one more time on this one. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And here's just the list of, of the 11 apostles at this time. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Verse 14 is a big one here. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Not only do you have kind of the, the first staff of the church, the, the apostles, the disciples, but they've brought on even kind of a, an extended leadership team as well around them that includes women, that includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers as well. This team that was about to have the Holy Spirit fall upon them that we'll see in a couple of weeks, what was this team doing before they planted the church? Praying. Man, we can, we can get around tables and we can strategize as much as we want. We can, we can pull together and be like, hey, who's gifted in, in speaking in front of people? Who's gifted in music? Who's, who's gifted in administration? Who's gifted in loving kids? Bless your heart. Who's gifted in other things? Like, we can strategize as much as we want and try to place people who seem to be competent in order to try and plant a church. But if we do not pray and if we do not rely and trust that God is going to build the church that he wants to build, if we don't start with that as our foundation, we will never plant a church. We will never plant a ministry that, that produces inreach and outreach. If we're not relying on God, if we're not trusting, if we're not aligning, if we're not saying your will be done, not my will, and if we're not providing a humility there by coming to him and saying, God, I have no idea what I'm doing, but you know exactly what you want to do, and that's where I want to be. If we're not doing that, then we'll just spin our wheels. We'll be like the hamster on the wheel, constantly thinking we're doing something, but we're never going anywhere. I mean, it's kind of like how many of you, you'd rather run on the Monon rather than on a treadmill, Right? Because on the Monon, you at least feel like I'm, I'm seeing scenery. I'm seeing other people. I feel like I'm 
producing something. But if you're just on a treadmill, just running, 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 you don't feel like you went anywhere because you didn't go anywhere. The church operating out of skills rather than prayer is a treadmill. And we'll run and run and run. We'll exhaust ourselves. This is one of the things that, that, that I've gotten pushed back on, but I'm still going to stick by it just because I think it's right. The idea of burnout happens when we leave prayer behind. When, when we are operating as believers with that dunamis, that power, that strength of the Holy Spirit that is providing, that is sustaining us and fueling us, and we're then operating in the roles and capacities that God has designed us to operate in. And we are praying for God to drive that and build that and bless that and move that and increase that. When we're in that place, guess what? Guess what happens? Ministry increases. Fruit happens. Fruit is produced and all the while, as you are working and as you are exhausting yourself in ministry, guess what's happening? You're resting. You're resting. Some of the most restful times that I've experienced in ministry have been the times that I've been asked to do more than I'm capable of doing, which oftentimes has caused me to come back and rely and trust and pray and get on my hands and knees and say, Lord, I have no idea how this is going to be accomplished, but you've got to accomplish it. The way that I want to close out for us today is we're going to close out with communion. But the way that I want to do communion this time, I'm going to go ahead and have the band come on down front. The way that I want to do communion today is... Um, We're each going to go back. We're going to grab the bread. We're going to break it off. We're going to dip it in the juice. And then I want you to go, and I want you to find three or four people. And I want you, amongst those three or four people, I want you to pray together. Because that's what the first church was doing, right? As they were getting ready to plant this church, they were praying together for the Lord to do what the Lord wants to do in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They've been given this command, the Holy Spirit's going to fall, and so they're praying, Holy Spirit, fall. That They're probably, of anybody, they're probably both incredibly excited for what that's going to be like, and then also incredibly terrified because they've never seen what the Holy Spirit's going to do. But they're excited, and they're willing, and they're, hu- they're humble in that upper room. And so we're kind of second floor of this mall, so we'll call this an upper room. So what I want us to do... Is, um, is as the band, they're just going to play some background music. And as we take communion, guys, this is the fuel. This is, this is the remembrance. The Holy Spirit's role is to help us remember Christ and what he's done, to draw us back to him. And we're looking at this is what Christ was willing to do in order to create a church. Break his body, shed his blood. To provide the removal of our sins, the forgiveness that we needed because we are those broken people. We are those fumbling, stumbling faults and failures. But he broke his body and he shed his blood in order to provide forgiveness for us, to create the opportunity for us to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive Christ, to receive that strength, to be sustained daily as we walk hand in hand with our Father.
And that father knows exactly how he wants this church to be built. So go back, grab some bread, dip it in the juice, couple up three or four people in, in a group, and just pray together, pleading for the Lord to build this church. Not just for the sake of building a church, but for the gospel to reach the least of these in Indianapolis. For the gospel to provide hope for people who don't have hope. For the gospel to connect people's hands with the Father's hands so that they can walk with him every single day. That's what we want. That's what the planting of the church ultimately is. God, thank you so much for your love and your grace that you pour out to us daily. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your mission of reconciling the world to yourself. We play a very, very small part in that, but that small part is meant to make Jesus look big and magnified and beautiful. And so God, we pray for him to look good. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at